to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts. Hello. Acts chapter 2. We're in uh, verse 42. Uh, I got to be honest with you, I kind of made a, a miscalculation. I thought, thought our anniversary weekend since the founding of this church was this Sunday. And started working on this sermon in preparation for that. Uh, but then as I started to backtrack and look, it's actually two weeks from today. But when you are so deep into a sermon by Thursday, Friday for me, there's no turning back. Uh, so we'll pick up in Luke uh, maybe next week. We might even do a sermon series on the church. Uh, but I want to ask the question this morning. My goal was is to define for us how we measure church success? What are we looking for? Uh, because I think it's important that uh, we've almost been here two years, it's a couple of weeks off, but I want us to rightly understand uh, what we're doing here and how is it that we gauge whether or not we're doing things in the right way. In other words, how are we measuring Grace Fellowship Church as being successful or not? Because I think in a large part, if we don't have our minds on some sort of goal or uh, some sort of objective, we'll have absolutely no sense of direction, we'll have no heading by which we're to sail, and we will consistently be playing church each Sunday. We'll be just going through the motions and showing up and checking the box and saying, we've done church, we've done our part. And then we're going to live the, our lives throughout the rest of the week with devoid of any thoughts about God and ultimately about the church. So how is it that we know that we're doing the right thing? How are we supposed to know that we're to be here and in this place and doing it by any measure of success? Now, many churches measure success strictly by numerical growth. And sadly, within the SBC, that seems to be the only indicator that they're interested in a lot of times. They want to evaluate their associated churches and see how they're doing. It's kind of a numbers thing for them. They want to know... How many people do you have as members? How many baptisms? How many churches have been planted? How many, how many, how many? And it's sad to say that sometimes those churches uh, misrepresent who they have as members. They have members on their roles that are either not coming to church, they're not part of the body, or even they're dead, and they have not adjusted their membership roles to reflect that. And sadly, uh, we have to call that exactly what it is. It's sin. It's blatant lying, it's pride, and it's deception. But most churches are heavy, heavy on the numbers game. How many people showed up on a particular Sunday? I've actually been to a church planning seminar one time where this church's goal was to be known for planning the most churches in the United States. And they spent 45 minutes with us explaining how they have this Excel spreadsheet and how it's supposed to be this nice, tight formula that you're supposed to follow in order to be a successful church plant. It had how many people you were supposed to reach, how many people would actually come to church and then stay at church, how many would commit themselves, what the estimated giving was going to be for that based upon how many numbers you have. And as myself and another missionary friend, we sat there, it really left a bad taste in our mouth. Because it just didn't seem right to us. How could someone so mechanically break down church growth and success to a mere numbers game on a spreadsheet? 
But I want you to know this first and foremost, that we do not measure our success that way because that's not how God measures success. We don't count heads here. We don't, I don't know how many people were here last Sunday or this Sunday, right? Some of you have attended churches where they have that board in the back, right? And it says, how many had this Sunday? How many had last Sunday? How much offering was? Those types of things, right? But if you haven't noticed, we don't have that board on our wall, right? We don't keep a tally sheet as to how many people showed up this Sunday or that particular Sunday. Because I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said, when you are so focused on that seat that is empty, you are doing a huge disservice to the seat that is filled. Meaning that when you worry about the empty seats in your church, you're doing a huge disservice to what you're called to do, and that is teach and preach the body that you have. We don't measure success numerically. We measure success spiritually. We don't measure church uh, success by the breadth of the church, but we measure it by the depth of, it, of the church. Because I'm fully convinced that if we are faithful into digging deeper and deeper into the Word of God, He will be faithful to take care of the breath. And all of you being here is a testimony to that very fact. So what do we mean by that exactly? What are we looking for in order to gauge church success? I want us to look at the Word of God this morning in Acts chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 41 to give us a bit of context. So if you're there in Acts chapter 2, looking at verse 41, if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's word, I invite you to do so. God's word says this in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its nourishment to our souls. We thank you for its sufficiency. And we thank you that you have given it to us in our language. What a treasure we have. Lord, let us not squander that treasure. Help us to hear your word today, Lord, even though it comes through a mere man. Help us to take our minds off the cares and things of this world and focus in on you this very hour. Lord, may you be glorified through this, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, just to give you a little bit of background as to what's going on in this text, the Lord Jesus had just ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit as he had promised on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had come upon the men in Jerusalem that were there from all over the world, And he allowed them to speak in various tongues or languages so that all who were there marveled that they were hearing the deeds of God proclaimed in their own language. 
So we've got this supernatural event going on here, right? Then Peter comes along and he stands up and he delivers the first Christian sermon. And if you'll notice in your text, starting from verse 14, if you would look all the way back there, all the way to verse 37 of Peter's sermon, you should note that there are these sections of text. They're indented and they're capitalized, telling us that Peter, as he was preaching, he was re- re- uh, relying heavily upon the scripture. What was foretold of the old Messiah in the Old Testament has now become materialized in the New Testament at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But it is an absolute scripture-saturated sermon. And so as Peter delivers to them this overwhelming evidence to them that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, they ask Peter in response to the sermon, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were pierced to the heart. And Peter tells them that they need to repent and each one of you be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't tell them, walk this aisle. He doesn't say, pray this this prayer after me. He doesn't tell them to fill out a response card. He tells them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then suddenly, all of a sudden, we've got 3,000 new church members. And that's where we end up in verse 41 of our text. Now we need to understand that this was a huge change for these 3,000 believers. Because by entering the waters of baptism here, and therefore publicly identifying with Jesus Christ, they would be making a statement that they are rejecting their heritage. They would be rejecting their rich cultural and religious identity with Judaism. And more important, they are rejecting their previous conclusion about Jesus Christ. And now embracing him by entering the waters of baptism. It was a stark, drastic public act that would have been a costly identification for them. Baptism was serious and sober and it was a dramatic event in their lives. But then we see four things that the early church did in verse 42 that we can use as a measuring rod as to how successful we are as a church. Excuse me. Because I believe that what we see historically in the early church is what God would have us do in the church today. One pastor I uh, used to talk to frequently, he loved to say that the book of Acts was merely descriptive but not prescriptive, meaning that it wasn't for us to try to model or try to copy, but that we can pretty much do whatever we want in terms of our gathering together as the body of Christ. And theologians describe this in terms of the regulated principle of worship and the normative principle of worship. The regulated principle says that whatever we see and whatever is decreed in Scripture, that's what we're going to follow. The normative principle says that if it's not in there, it's okay, we can do it anyway. And that's why you have marching bands in church and guys in Mr. Sparkle suits and all kinds of craziness in the church. But needless to say, I could not disagree with this man, this pastor, more and more because, as we're going to see in the morning in a minute here, everything that the first church did basically was absolutely critical and foundational for their spiritual growth and maturity. Everything that they engaged in as an assembly of believers was necessary and it was vital for their spiritual health and it is still necessary and vital for yours and mine today. 
You can't convince me that somehow it's okay for us to take the church of Jesus Christ that he said he would build in Matthew 16, and that Ephesians 1.22 and 5.23 and Colossians 1.18 that says that he is the head of the church and that he purchased with his own blood, and that somehow we can shrug off a text like this that we have before us and say, eh, take it or leave it. The church is literally God's called out ones, and that he has summoned together according to his purpose, and I think it is absolutely critical that we use his means and we use his methods, just as he did in the first church. And so I truly believe that this this text is not only descriptive, but it is prescriptive for us as believers today. If we want to be a church that succeeds, if we want to be a biblical church, we need to utilize the same methods and understand the same principles that God had ordained in Acts chapter 2. We need to follow the blueprint that God has given us. So in our text this morning, we're going to see they did four things that they were continually devoting themselves to. First of all, they were scripturally saturated. Scripturally saturated. It says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, they didn't have a completed New Testament at this time like you and I enjoy today. But what they did have is the apostles' teaching. And the apostles' teaching was authoritative as it was the Word of God. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says this, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, for the building up of the body of Christ. What the apostles taught was authoritative because God gave them, that is the apostles, as a gift to the early church, which is the body of Christ, And so what they taught was what God wanted them to teach until it could be written down into books of the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says this, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us and accepted it, not as the words of men, but for what it really was, the word of God. We don't have apostles running around today like some people try to say that I'm apostle this or apostle that. But what the apostles taught is what God wanted them to teach, just as Jude says that we should remember the things that were spoken by the apostles. Why is that? Because it was authoritative through them verbally until it could be written down. Now, why was it so important for the first church to closely Follow the apostles' teaching or doctrine. It's DDK here. Why should the word of God be so emphasized in the life of the church? To put it very simply, the word of God is necessary for spiritual growth. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, which most of you should be familiar with, says that all scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. 1 Peter 2, 2 2-3 says, Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this reason we also thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the words of men, but for what it really was, 
the word of God which performs its work in you who believe. The word is the means by which you know the character of God. It is the means by which you know his nature, his attributes. It's how you know doctrine. It's how you know about salvation, sin, death, heaven, hell, judgment, eternal life. It is your means to know God. The word is there for you to know what you should and shouldn't believe, what you should stay away from, what thoughts you should avoid, what attitudes you need to cast aside. The word is there for you to know which direction you should be headed in life. Scripture not only gives us uh, or identifies wrong thoughts and, and actions, but it shows us the right direction ahead. No substitute will do for the nourishment of the souls of the saints, and the church that neglects the word of God does so at its own peril. Hosea 6.4 says that my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. But the word of God is important in the life of the believer because you can't obey what you don't know. You can't avoid something if you haven't been warned about it. You can't trust someone if you don't, and someone you don't even know. You can't cast your anxieties on someone that you don't think will care and is acquainted with all your ways. And so for these 3,000 new believers, it was absolutely essential for them to be dedicated to constantly devoting themselves to the Word of God through the apostles' teaching. But you know the same is true for us today. If there is ever a day, if there is ever a moment that we need to be devoted to the Word of God and knowing it, it is today. Every single day that we spend without an intake of the Word of God should be counted as a wasted day. You might as well chalk it up as a lost day. I wonder if we took chalk paint and we painted two walls in our home and we put a chalk mark down for every single day that we read the Word of God and every single day that we didn't, what would those walls look like? How many days have gone by in your life? How many hours of your life have you foolishly spent on that internet wasting time? Your connectedness to God is by far more important than your supposed connectedness to your friends on Facebook or your Instagram account or whatever it is that you waste your time on. Do you love God more than that computer mouse? Do you love God more than that remote control? Do you love God more than your iPhone? then what you need to do is cast those things aside, repent, and ask God to help you have a love for His Word like you've never, ever had before. Ask Him, give me a passion for knowing and studying the Word of God, and then you need to get your nose in that book. None of us are ever going to advance beyond the measure of the intake of God's Word. None of us will ever grow in our faith if we don't constantly feed and nourish our souls on the Word of God. And none of us will ever have any measure of satisfaction in the Christian life if we don't take in the Word of God. Do you struggle with sin? I do. Then treasure the Word of God in your heart so that you will not sin against Him, as Psalm 119.11 says. Are you feeling afflicted? Then let God revive you and comfort you, as Psalm 119.50 says, from His Word. Are you unsure on what you should believe as being true or not? 
then let God's word resonate in your heart because his word is truth, as John 17, 17 says. So the first church was a scripture-saturated church. The second thing that we see the church was, was a loving, unified church. It says that they were devoted to fellowship. Now, the word that Luke, here, Luke used here in Acts 2.42 for fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, or koine. It, was, it's, it means to share, or to participate, or even intimacy. The adjective form of koinonia is koinos, which means common. This is where we get the idea between the Lord's Supper being communion, common, right? We're sharing in the commonality with Christ's body broken and blood shed for the sins in a symbolic manner. If you recall, the New Testament's written in Koine Greek, which is otherwise known as Common Greek. It's the language that Alexander the Great, as he was conquering the worlds from Greece all the way to India, down into North Africa, Mesopotamia, all that, he had to be able to communicate with those peoples that he conquered. And so he developed Common Greek, or Koine Greek. And it ended up being the language that was used to write the New Testament. But this word means intimate commonality or a partnership. Now, the first thing that you need to know about fellowship is that we have to have fellowship with Christ. There's a vertical aspect to it, if you will. Without Christ, we have just another social club here, a social organization like the Rotary Club or the Moose Lodge or whatever fraternal organization you want to name. This building, it could be used for any number of things, but because we are in here and because we are the people of God, that makes it a church. But first of all and foremost, we have fellowship with Christ. We see that in 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you and I were first called into koinonia, or fellowship, with Jesus Christ. 1 John 1-3 through illustrates a similar idea. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So the 3,000 people here in Acts chapter 2 had just become believers in Jesus Christ and were first sharing an intimate, personal fellowship with Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. So first of all, we've got to have fellowship with Christ. The second thing that we need to know about fellowship is especially true, that is, if you have fellowship with Christ, you will want to have fellowship with other believers. There's a, a horizontal aspect to it as well. How can we make that statement? How can we say that? Because Scripture is very, very clear that when you become a Christian, your Christian life is not to be lived in isolation, but it's to be lived out amongst other believers. Because the New Testament abounds with what we might call the one another's. You guys have heard me say this before. We're to be devoted to one another in brotherly love and give preference to one another in honor. We're to be of the same mind towards one another. Pursue things which build for peace and the building up of one another. We're to accept one another. Have the same care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Show tolerance for one another. Be kind to one another. There are an endless list of one another's. There's over 50 plus one another's in the New Testament. So my question to those who claim to know Christ and they claim to have fellowship with Him is, 
if you're not in a church, if you're not in a body of believers, how are you going to carry out those one another's? How are you going to receive one of those one another's unless you're locked up in some sort of solitary confinement or prison or some other extreme circumstance? There is no reason for you not to be in fellowship with a body of believers in America. If you claim to be in fellowship with Christ, you will be in fellowship with other believers in order to exercise what we call the one another's. To stay home and to have your own internet church is really just a matter of rebellion. Because Hebrews 10.25 also tells us that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Consider Proverbs 27.17. Proverbs 27.17 says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Ecclesiastes 4.9 and 10. It says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the other will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. We could go on and on and on. And so another reason that you want to have fellowship with other believers is because God has given us each spiritual gifts. You can't use those gifts if you are not in fellowship with other believers. Romans 12, 4-8 says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, is service in his serving, or who, he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, or he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Isn't it interesting, as we read those lists of uh, gifts given to us, prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, showing mercy, you, do you realize that there is not one of those that you can do all by yourself? Not one. You have to be in fellowship with other believers in order to exercise your God-given gifts. 1 Peter 4.10 makes a similar statement. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good servants of the manifold grace of God. God has given you and I spiritual gifts, and they are to be used for the edification and the encouragement of others in church. You can't do that if you stay at home. You can't do that if you avoid this place. So that's why we can say that if you claim to have fellowship with Christ, you will want to have fellowship with other believers. J.I. Packer once wrote, We should not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury, an optional addition into the exercises of private devotion. We should recognize, rather, that such fellowship is a spiritual necessity. For God has made us in such a way that our fellowship with himself is fed with our fellowship with fellow Christians and requires to be fed so constantly for its own deepening and enrichment. And so we see this first church start sharing in fellowship so much that they're selling their property to be able to take care of one another's needs. And they were eating together with gladness and sincerity of heart, as verses 44 through 46 tell us. There was a joy in being together, with being with one another, because they were united 
in Christ. So how much hospitality have you shown to other members in this church? How many times have you got together with other people in this body outside of Sunday mornings? Romans 12.10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligent, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. We love to say we rejoice in hope. We love to say we can persevere through tribulation. We love to say that we are devoted to prayer. We love to contribute to the needs of the saints. But do we really practice hospitality? Do we really open our homes and our lives to others, even others in this church? Are we seeing our gatherings together at church so important that we don't want to squander the gifts that God has given us? So the first church was a scripture-saturated church. It was a loving and unified church. And the third thing that it was, it was a Christ-centered church. A Christ-centered church. It says they were devoted to the breaking of bread. And this specifically relates to the Lord's Supper, or what we call communion. The Catholic Church calls this the Eucharist. And the Orthodox churches, they call it the Eucharist as well. And that word literally just means the giving of thanks. But we're to be devoted to remembering the Lord's shed blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. We're to do it in remembrance and we're to do it in reverence. We are to acknowledge the wondrous work of Jesus Christ on the cross because this is where all of us as sinners come to meet on common ground. It's mandatory for all Christians, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that what he has received, he is now delivering to them, but that they proclaim the Lord's death through communion. It's a time for us to examine ourselves. It's a time for us to confess sin and thus maintain the purity of the church. But not only does that have a vertical aspect to it, like the fellowship does, but it also has a horizontal aspect to it. And Paul exemplifies this in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17. He says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. When we take the Lord's Supper, it is a time for us to renew our commitment to Christ, and it is a time for us to commit and renew our love and unity towards one another. And we are to do this until Christ returns and our faith becomes sight. But when we come together for the Lord's Supper, it should really be a time for us to come in awe and a time of reverence. It should be a time to come with our hearts full of joy and adoration for the eternal living Son of God who would come and give His body and His blood for us. And He did so willingly. So the first church was scripture-saturated. It was a loving and unified church. It was a Christ-centered church. But then lastly, it was a God-dependent church. It was a God-dependent church. It says that they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Thomas Watson once said that prayer is the soul's breathing. John Calvin said that prayer is the soul's faith. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said that prayer is the slender nerve which moves the muscles of omnipotence. 
the first time that we see prayer in the Bible is all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 4, and verse 26, it says that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So what is prayer? Prayer, in its most simplest of definitions, is talking to God. Prayer is a means of intimate fellowship with the Father. If there is ever an example in Scripture of this, it has to be that of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then the Son of God and the perfect delight of the Trinity regularly and frequently went to His Father in prayer. Just in the book of Luke that we've been studying, He began His public ministry by prayer in Luke 3. He would often slip away and pray in Luke 5.16. In 6.12, He went to the mountain to pray, and He spent the whole night doing so. In Luke 9.21, or 9.28 rather, He went up to the mountain to pray again. And then when he was transfigured on the mountain, it says that he was praying right before that happened. In Luke twenty-two forty-one, before he was betrayed, it says that he withdrew to pray. In Luke twenty-three forty-six, it even says that he was praying when he died. The King of glory, the great Emmanuel, the Son of God, was consistently and frequently and constantly engaged in prayer with his heavenly Father. But in the Bible, prayer is never described as an optional activity in the life of the believer because it is absolutely foundational, critical, and necessary means for us to have intimate communion with God. Ephesians 6.18 says we are to pray at all times. Colossians 4.2 says we are to be devoted to prayer. It's not an optional exercise. What do we say to God? What do we say to Him? We're to confess sin. We're to adore Him. We're to cast our burdens upon Him. We're to give thanks to Him. We're to ask Him for things from Him so that the Son may be glorified. We don't ask things from God in sort of a vending machine sort of way, but we ask for things in order that the Father may be glorified in the Son, as John 14 says, and we are to ask according to the will of God. But why don't we pray? What's the reasons that we don't pray? Why is it that next to reading the Word of God that we neglect this great spiritual duty? Why don't we pray? It could be a lack of humility. We think that we can just kind of get along fine in this world without the aid and intervention of God. But being independent is not the pathway to spiritual growth and maturity. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Another reason it could be, we've got a lack of faith. Maybe we haven't seen the results that we wanted to happen to see in our timing, according to our schedule and according to our terms. God didn't act the way we wanted him to. And so we neglect to pray. And we suffer from depraved indifference in regards to prayer. Or probably more so accurately, we don't pray because, frankly, we are disobedient. We are disobedient. Romans 12.12 says we are to be devoted to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says we are to pray without ceasing. We just don't do it. Listen, if we are going to have any spiritual power in our lives, we are going to have to infuse it with the turbocharged 103-octane racing gas discipline of prayer. J.C. Ryle said that if you want to know that reason that some people seem to be more holy than others, 
Those who are holy pray much. We need to be disciplined in prayer. We need to commit our time to prayer. But we need to see this not merely as a duty, but we need to see prayer as a delight, as a means of intimacy with our Heavenly Father. We need to delight that when God does answer prayer, our faith is made more sure. And we need to delight that when God answers prayer, we know that He loves us and He cares for us as an intimate, loving Father. Psalm 34, 17 says that when the righteous cry, the Lord hears. What a privilege, what an honor, and why on earth would we squander such a gift? So how do we measure church success? We measure church success when people start to memorize and meditate and know the Word of God so much more than than we know our favorite sports team and our stats and the characters in a movie. That we would actually tremble at the Word of God and we would long to treasure it in our hearts. We measure success when people long to be with one another, meeting outside of Sunday mornings, sharing one another's burdens that no one has need so that we don't remain isolated through the week, and we do so with joy. We measure success that when we come together and we partake of communion, that we confess sin and we keep Christ crucified, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, as the only means by which we can be saved from the wrath to come, as central to all that we teach and preach. And we start to see the depth of our sinfulness as we gaze deeper and deeper into the holiness of God. And we respond to Him in thankfulness and adoration that His grace abounds more and more. And we measure success that when the people of the Lord delight to pray, that we see our time with God through prayer as necessary to our spiritual health as we do breathing does to our physical health and that we bear one another one another's burdens through prayer, and that we become steadfast and committed and immovable and fervent and disciplined and devoted to praying to our Heavenly Father. And if we are thankful in those things, or we are faithful in those things, if we as the people of God will commit ourselves in obedience to these things by the power of God's Spirit working within us, asking Him to help our hearts to be overflowing with gratitude and our minds constantly transformed by His Word and our faith strengthened for His glory, then that is how we are going to measure success. And if God increases our numbers, as He has done over these last couple years, may God give us the strength to persevere and the strength to finish the race well. Let's pray. Father, what a marvelous gift you have given us in your word, in fellowship with other believers, in being able to remember what you have done in eager anticipation of your coming, and that we have such a high privilege of praying and speaking with the infinite God of the universe who is sovereign and supreme. Lord, help us to cherish these things. Help us to devote time to reading your word and memorizing your word and letting your word just fill our hearts. And Lord, help us to be a people of prayer. Help us to depend upon you for everything. When the trials come, when the the storms seem to rage against us, Lord, help us to look to you. Help us not to depend upon our own strengths and pull ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps. But let us cast all things onto you. 
for you are good, and every good and perfect gift comes down from above. Father, let these things resonate in our minds and our hearts as we go through our week. We just pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we had a